Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would show us Christ. That in your word, in this part of your word, we would see the glories hidden but now revealed about our Savior. And that our hearts would be drawn to him in faith in such a way that our desires and our behavior and our thoughts and our affections and our relationships are pleasing to you. And I ask, Father, that that you, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would cause this part of your word to come truly alive for us. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can have a seat. Over the holidays, I watched a movie about Operation Market Garden, which was the failed Allied plan in 1944 to capture a series of Dutch cities and secure a bridgehead over the Rhine River, which would lead directly into Germany, and hopefully the plan was to end World War II by Christmas of 1944. And I I enjoy old war movies, and this one was particularly uh, meaningful to me because my grandparents were living just an hour from where the events in this movie took place. So it directly impacted them. And just like any other war movie, as I watched this one, I found myself rooting for the good guys. I really wanted the good guys to succeed. I wanted the Allies to put the Nazis on the run and end the war by Christmas, just like everybody hoped would happen. But from the beginning of the movie, I knew that this wasn't going to happen. Like I said, this movie was about the failed Allied plan Every, if you know history, you'll and, and, and even just read the back of, of the movie, it's just plain that, that it didn't work. I knew as I began the movie that things were going to fall apart and that the war was not over by Christmas. I knew that one of the results, one of the direct results of this failed operation was a winter of famine in the Netherlands in which over 20,000 Dutch people starved to death. Many of family and friends of, of my, my Opa and Oma and so my experience watching this movie is really interesting because as you watch it, you're wishing for the best. You're hoping for the best. You're rooting for the good guys. But you expect the worst. In fact, you know that the worst is coming. And this experience of wishing for the best but knowing that the worst is coming was, was not unlike the experience of reading through Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Back in Genesis 5, 28 to 29, we read that when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. And don't we hear that and just want to say, please, please, it's only 10 generations of pain from Adam to Noah. And, and, and please, could it, could it be over? Could, could Noah be the one to reverse the curse and make things new? Please? Could Noah be the hope for a savior? We want it to be true, even though we know that it, it won't be. 
And then we read about the flood. We read about God undoing and then, and then renewing creation. Noah emerging from the ark like a new Adam. It's a fresh start, a new beginning. Who, who doesn't love that feeling? I remember as, as a kid in, in, in public school, I went to a terrible public school. I had an awful experience. But every September, there was still that hope that maybe, maybe this year will be different. The fresh start, the smell of sharpened pencils and the fresh classroom. Just, there was always hope there. And, and, and here in, in Genesis 9 with the flood and the new beginning after the flood, a, a righteous man, Noah, blameless in his generation. I mean, if, if anyone is, is going to be the guy to pick for a fresh start, it's him. A fresh start on a new world scrubbed clean from evil. They've learned some big lessons. This time things are going to be different, right? We want that to be true, even though we know it won't be. Genesis 8.21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God tells us, before anything else does, that the flood did not change anything in the basic situation at the heart of humanity. And so what we get to in our passage today is the other shoe dropping. Okay, God has told us already what to expect and today we, we see that happening. Just like the fall in the garden in Genesis 3, so these verses in Genesis 9 show us the painful end to that fresh new world after the flood. Reading through these verses is like that movie I told you about, or it's like watching a train wreck unfold, and you know it's coming, but it's, it's still hard to see it happening. But there's more than meets the eye here. As we watch Noah and his family crumble before our eyes, there's some very powerful lessons here to be learned about ourselves. And we also see there's some very powerful truths here about the Savior that the Lord was deliberately preparing us for. The disappointment in this passage is deliberate and does something very important for us, which we don't want to miss. What we're going to do is walk through this passage step by step. You've got an outline in your bulletin, seven steps. And just a, a quick word here that, that we are going all the way up to chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, but don't let that scare you. It's, we're, that, that's just going to be one of the quick steps is all of chapter 10. Um, but but uh, just be, be ready that, that we, we brought these two passages together and you're going to see how they fit together in this way. But the first step in verses 18 to 19, we're introduced afresh to Noah's sons. Now it's not a, it doesn't say these are the generations of, uh, which, is, which is what we see in chapter 10. Uh, so it's not a whole new section that's starting, but it's, 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 it's introducing us in a fresh way to these three men with their wives who came off the ark with Noah. They're, they're, and they're introduced in a very formal way. I mean, we know them already, but, but, but verses 18 and 19 are very formal. They were given their names. Verse 19 repeats these are his sons and repeats that it was from them that the whole earth was repopulated. Now, now we, d- we don't know a lot about these men. We can assume from that up until this point, we can assume that they shared their father's righteousness and faith. We assume they shared at least a measure of their father's faith. Otherwise, why would they have been on the boat? Right? Like, they would have been judged with everybody else. The, the fact that they got onto the boat with Noah and, and had a share in this shows that they, they had some measure of a shared faith in, in what was going on. 
But there's an ominous note tucked into the end of verse 18. Do you, do you notice that? 10, or sorry, chapter 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Sheb, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Why, why is that there? Well, Genesis was written or at least edited and compiled primarily for the people of Israel. Their main enemies were who? The Canaanites, right? And so there's this sort of a dun-dun-dun moment here as, as we're seeing some future being foreshadowed. It preps us for some of the bad news that's coming. Our second step in the passage is Noah's foolish failure. This is where we'll spend most of the time. There, there's three subpoints here you can see. So there's three, three aspects that we want to look at of, of Noah's foolish failure in verses 20 to 21. The first has to do with too much of a good thing. Notice verse 19 starts off pretty innocent. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Just like Adam, Noah worked the ground. And he was fruitful. He planted a vineyard. Some, some interpreters even say this is perhaps a small fulfillment of his father's hope because initially he's, he's fruitful. Now, we don't know if this was on the first year or not. We don't want to read too much into this, but the idea is Noah plants a vineyard and is fruitful. And, and it's actually interesting that in, in the original language, there's some indicators that Noah might have been the first person to figure out grape growing and wine making. That's why if in the ESV text, there's a little, there's a little note, and, and, and it shows this, this could be translated, Noah, comma, a man of the soil, comma, was the first to plant a vineyard. Okay, so that's, that's a possibility. Now, so far, so good. And even when we get into verse 21, it's still so far, so good. He drank of the wine. That's what it says. So far, nothing wrong has happened. The Bible is consistent that the ability to grow things from the ground is a gift from God. The ability to make things from what grows from the ground is a gift from God, and that even includes wine. Psalm 104, great creation psalm, in verse 14 to 15, says, says to the Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he might bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. So, and we, we've talked about this a bunch in, in recent years when we've looked at First Timothy and this summer we looked at Proverbs that in and of itself, the Bible does not condemn alcohol. However, we do know that though it can be viewed as a blessing, it's a, it's a dangerous blessing because it's very easy to cross the line and drink too much. And that's why, for example, in the book of Proverbs, most of the mentions about wine are warnings because of the danger that's there. That's why we saw back in First Timothy that people like Timothy stayed away from wine entirely. And so a decision that, that many people have made. But for the sake of Genesis 9, I just think it's important, for the sake of Genesis 9, without getting into a whole theology of alcohol, let's identify the problem where the problem is. The problem was not that Noah planted a vineyard. The problem was not that Noah made wine. And the problem was not that Noah drank the wine. The problem was that Noah drank too much of the wine. He didn't stop. And as verse 21 goes on to say, he became drunk. Too much of a good thing is, in this case, a very, very bad thing. 
Now, we want to make a second observation about this, and it comes from the question, how did this happen? See, this, this seems so out of character for Noah that, that it's actually some of the critical scholars who say silly things and get paid to say silly things, they'll say, well, this was written by a different author and, and sort of pasted into the text here because this is so out of character with everything we know about Noah up till this point. Okay, that's the kind of, th- kind of thing that critical scholars will say and where they get that from. They'll look at something out of character and go, oh, well, someone else wrote it and it got patched in. Instead of paying careful attention and realizing, no, no, this is actually a very profound point here. How did a godly, blameless man like Noah, whom we've heard nothing about, get himself to the spot where he's passed out drunk, naked in his tent? I think that if we think about it, it's not hard to see that after the stress of being on the ark for all those months, after the decades, at least, of building this big boat and putting up with the ridicule of everybody, after the joy of a fresh start, the knowledge that you and your children are the only people on a fresh new world, the blessing of a good crop of grapes, the wonderful taste of drinking something that you made for yourself, it it would be easy, wouldn't it, for Noah to cut loose a little bit, to relax his standards, to lose control, to not know when to stop. It doesn't surprise me. Isn't it true that it's often after our greatest victories that we let our guard down and experience our greatest defeats? Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that a pattern? You've probably known it in your life. It's a pattern we see in Scripture. Wasn't it after David was established secure in Jerusalem that he fell in with Bathsheba? Wasn't it after Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel that he completely fell apart? Nancy Wolgamuth has referred to this phenomenon as the battle after the battle. That's often after our greatest victory that we need to pray most earnestly, lead us not into temptation. And so here we have Noah. After centuries, literally, of godliness. And he loses control and he fails in a spectacular way. There's a third point we want to see here, which is about drunkenness and vulnerability. And specifically, I'm talking about sexual vulnerability. Righteous Noah is drunk, silly, lying naked in his tent, and he is ready for something embarrassing to happen to him. And sure enough, something terribly embarrassing does happen to him. This is a pattern, once again, in, in, that we can see in the world. But, but before we get there, we see this in the Bible. Okay, the next time, so this is the first time in the Bible that someone gets drunk. The next time in the Bible that someone gets drunk, it's Lot. And we know something even more sexually embarrassing happens to him in that spot. And many other passages in the Bible connect drunkenness with indecency and sexual vulnerability. And so one of the lessons we can learn from that is don't get drunk. Don't put yourself in that spot where you're helpless for other people to take advantage of you. Now, by saying that, we're not excusing the people who take advantage of vulnerable people. Okay? Ham mocks his father, and Ham gets dealt with. Okay? Ham gets dealt with. Ham is responsible for Ham's sin. But wouldn't it have been better for Noah to not put himself in this spot in the first place? Wouldn't that have been better? 
So here, here's why we're thinking about this a little bit more. We're going to, because in our, in our culture over the last few years, this has actually been a big issue. It's connected to the, the, the quote unquote Me Too mov- movement and the drinking culture that exists among 20 and 30 somethings in, in, our, in, the, in our broader culture. I'm sure you've heard the news stories about the young women going to parties or bars, drinking way too much, and then getting taken advantage of by some loser guy. And the way that our culture talks about this issue, when it happens, it is only ever the guy's fault. The message from our culture to young women is that they have the right to drink however much they want, act however they want, dress however they want, go home with whoever they want, and if anything bad ever happens to them, it is only ever the other person's fault. Now let's be clear, it is evil for a man to take advantage of a woman at any point, especially when she's vulnerable and intoxicated. It is wicked and there is no excuse for that whatsoever. That being said, should not a wise young woman consider that there are people who do that kind of thing and that they probably are going to be drawn to environments like parties and bars where there are young women drinking a lot and where they could be easily taken advantage of? And shouldn't a wise young woman take steps to avoid putting herself in that situation? Isn't that just common sense? I remember this clicking for me a few years ago. I was going into Walmart, and there in the parking lot was a little sign that said, uh, we're not responsible for loss of items in your vehicle. Please lock your doors. Okay? Walmart knows that there's bad people in this world who steal things from your cars. They're not excusing them, but knowing that they're out there, you should lock your doors. Meanwhile, our culture is basically teaching particularly young women to open all four doors wide, leave their purse and phone on the front seat, and then act shocked when they get back to their car and see that it's missing. It's crazy, and it's one more idea, one more example of how our our culture is losing its mind. But we want to think about this just a little bit more because it's a part of a bigger idea. See, it's so important for us as Christians to, to, to think carefully about these things in our culture and where they came from. It's part of a bigger idea in our culture, which is that people should be able to do whatever they want without consequences. That's a, that's a pretty core belief in our broader culture in this moment. Those of you who work with, with young people know this. You know how hard it can be for them to grasp the idea of consequences. You can warn them about the consequences. You can give them multiple opportunities to, to turn away from those consequences. But when you bring the consequences, they will play the victim and treat you like you're the big bad wolf. Because they've been conditioned through school and media to act like they should be able to do whatever they want without consequences. This is why abortion is so important in our culture. People don't care that they're killing a baby. They're willing to sacrifice another life if it means that they can do whatever they want without consequences. So all of this idea comes from an even deeper idea, which is that everybody wants to pretend that God doesn't exist. We want to be our own little gods. We hate consequences because consequences burst that illusion. Consequences are a painful reminder that we are not in control. 
that we live in someone else's world. And people don't like that reminder, and so they will kill, literally, to get rid of the consequences if they can, to preserve the illusion that they can just do whatever they want. So you see how this insanity in our culture, right, of telling young women, go drink as much as you want, and, and, and you have no responsibility if anything happens to you, that is simply a manifestation of Eve reaching for the fruit, wanting to be like God. It's all pretty basic. A wise person who knows that they're not God and that they live in somebody else's world will look at Noah's story and will look at the many stories that we know in our culture and realize that if drinking too much makes us vulnerable in these ways, then we shouldn't drink too much. It's as simple as that. Now, of course, we know the New Testament says do not be drunk, right? So that, that makes it pretty simple. But I'm just trying to help us think through a pretty important cultural issue. Now, if we get back into the story of Noah, we get to our third step here, which is Ham's shameful betrayal. Nothing I've just said. Please don't take this at all as any kind of excuse for when someone does something wrong to a vulnerable person. Okay, I've said that before. I'm going to say it again, and we're going to see it right here. Ham is held responsible for what Ham did to his father, and we need to emphasize that. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, there it is again, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham sees his father and tells his brother outside. Now, just a brief aside, some of you might be familiar that there are some theories that there is something far more devious going on here. I don't think those hold up. I think the story and what Shem and Japheth do is very straightforward. What it says is what happened. When, when Adam and Eve first fell into sin, what's the first thing they noticed? They noticed their nakedness. And they were ashamed. And that shame still persists after the flood. Okay? That's actually one of, the, one of the important functions of this story is, is it's showing us, it's reminding us that the flood did not reverse the fall. If it had, there would have been no shame in Noah being drunk and naked. There would have been no shame in his nakedness, but there is. So in other words, the flood has not reversed the fall. Unchosen public nakedness still carries with it a shame as a result of sin. And Ham sees his father in this shameful spot, and instead of honoring him by covering him up, he goes outside to tell his brothers. See, it's not hard to imagine him kind of smirking or laughing. (laughs) Have you seen Dad? Wow. But see how, how awful this is. Rather than protecting his father's reputation... He acts like so many people do on social media these days and just broadcasts Noah's failures for the rest of the world to see and to enjoy. In the ancient world, we should remember that honoring your parents was basically the highest virtue. Right? In the Jewish mind, you, were, you had an exemption from any part of the, of, of the Torah if you needed to, to t- take care of your parents specifically bury them, but that's connected to this idea that honoring your parents was the highest virtue in the ancient world. That's why when Jesus said, love me more than your mom and dad, that was one of the most radical things a person could say. But for Ham to bring shame upon his father, for Ham to spread his father's 
failure in a shameful way to his brothers was a really, 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 really big deal. And that's why Noah reacts so strongly when he finds out what happens. Before we get there, we see the fourth step in our passage, Shem and Japheth's honorable act. Shem and Japheth hear about what happened, but they basically do the opposite of Ham. Look at how the text is written. It's so deliberately written. They took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backward, covered their father, And in case we missed it, in case you don't get it, verse 23 emphasizes, repeats, their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. In case we missed it, it's very, very clear. Instead of seeing and shaming, they cover in an act of deliberate respect. Now, eventually, Noah wakes up, like so many people in our world are going to do later on today, after a late night of drinking. And somehow, Noah found out what Ham had done to him. And verse 25 opens up with these words. He said, now let's just stop for a moment. What are the first words? Recorded words in Genesis on the mouth of Noah. It's these ones. Okay, so we've been introduced to Noah. We've been told a lot about Noah. We've seen Noah do all kinds of things. We've never heard Noah talk until now. It's actually interesting because in, 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 in the Hebrew Bible, the first time a character speaks what they say is, is, is pretty important. It, it says something significant about them or their story. Think about this. Noah, this is, so, this is so sad. The man whose father hoped was going to set the f- world free from the curse, what are the first words recorded on his mouth? Cursed be Canaan. Isn't that sad? Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, Canaan was Ham's youngest son. Ham was Noah's youngest son. Noah's youngest son had tried to humiliate Noah in front of his brothers. So now, Noah humiliates Ham in front of his brothers by cursing his youngest son. Now, this curse is amplified by a blessing on Shem and Japheth in verses 26 and 27. And yet, even in that blessing, let Canaan be his servant is repeated twice. It's hard to miss the point here that Canaan is being cursed. Now, this might seem like a very strange idea to us, that a curse would fall on a son for what a father did. Does that seem strange? That, that Ham sins and Canaan gets cursed. This was not a strange idea to the first readers of this, of this passage. And for a few reasons. First of all, for a son to be cursed was a curse for the father. Because a father would want nothing more than for his children to be blessed and prosperous. When a son was blessed, that honored the father. When a son was cursed, that shamed the father. And so by cursing Canaan, Noah is cursed shaming Ham in a profound way. 
Second, the ancients understood this idea that the sins of the fathers were so often visited upon the children. Now, when we hear about that, we tend to think about innocent little kids getting punished for the sins of their dads. But far more often in Scripture, this idea simply refers to the fact that children walk in the ways of their parents, generally. And so... Children so often walk in the sins of their fathers and therefore share in the punishment of their fathers. Now, there are times where families are punished together, and that's a bit of an idea that has to do with this corporate understanding that they had that that we've talked about, in, uh, for example, in Joshua a year ago. But the bigger idea here is that Canaan and his offspring are cursed because they are going to walk in the shameful behavior of their father. That's the idea here. Now, we know this in part because we know that the Canaanites, who lived in the land of Canaan, were known for their sexual perversion. That was one of the reasons why Israel destroyed them and cast them out of the land. Israel descended from Shem, right? And so here we see that this line of shameful sin that went all the way down to the Hivites and the Girgashites and those different Canaanite clans, what Genesis is doing here is it's drawing a line all the way back to peeping Ham and his shameful treatment of Noah. Now, it's hard for us to know here, are Noah's words a prophecy? Are Noah's words a prayer? Are Noah's words here a wish? Was Noah even right to say these words? We don't, it doesn't say anything about that. We don't know. But there's no doubt of one thing, that Noah's words here in the, in the book of Genesis are pointing uh, to the future conflicts that are going to happen between the people of Israel and the people of, of Canaan. One of the things before we move on here that we got to remember is that family lines, family sin patterns, family judgments, they're never absolute. So we got to remember this, right? Even in the Old, Old Testament where family stuff so often happened together, each person had the responsibility for whether they were going to walk in the sins of their fathers or not. And that's why you have cases like Rahab, who's a Canaanite and a, a prostitute in Canaan. So, the, you know, we can think of her as being the worst of the worst. And she repents and turns to the Lord and gets included in his family, avoids judgment, gets, gets included in, in the family line of the Messiah. And when Israel, though they were from the line of Shem, when Israel starts to act like the Canaanites, they get eventually cast out of the land like the Canaanites. So... It's, it's not ultimately about who you were born from. It's about who you act like. And that's the bigger idea, right, is that children often act like their fathers, but not always. But the bigger idea here is it's... it's see, again, we're emphasizing this because people will talk about the book of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan, like, and they'll say it was genocide. It was not genocide. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. It was about behavior, which, in the case of Rahab, we can see they could turn aside from. This is not about who you were born from, but rather who you acted like. And though there were exceptions, in general, children tended to act like their parents and therefore share in their parents' fate. That's the idea behind Noah's words here. In this painful curse on the youngest son of his youngest son. With that, we get to the sixth step in our passage, which is where Noah's story comes to an end. Isn't that something? This is it. This is the last episode of Noah's life. 
Cursing Canaan. Like Adam, Noah gets a little stretch on a new earth that very quickly crumbles into sin and curse. And all we read next, verses 28 to 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. That's it. Curse. Death. That's how Nora's story ends. This man of hope, this man of second chances, this blameless man in his generation dies. And what Noah leaves behind him, just to fill in the blank here, okay, he dies, he's still suffering the curse of Genesis 3. And he leaves behind him a broken legacy, which very briefly we're going to look at here in chapter 10. Chapter 10 starts a new section in the book of Genesis. Remember, these are the generations of, in chapter 10, verse 1, that's always introducing a new section in the book of Genesis. And this chapter is often called the Table of Nations because it unfolds the peoples and the nations that came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I encourage you to read this chapter in its entirety, which we're not, we didn't do today. See how many names you recognize. Verses 2 to 5 recount the sons of Japheth. It's hard to miss the name Magog in there, which we know from the book of Ezekiel is one of the great future enemies of the people of God. The most space in this chapter is given to the sons of Ham from verse 6 down to verse 20. And this section, in verses 6 to 20, it's basically a who's who of all the future enemies of God's people. Just look at Ham's sons, his four sons in verse 6. Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan. Verses 8 to 12 tell us about Cush's son, Nimrod, a mighty man who founded Babel in the land of Shinar. That's where Babylon comes from. Verse 11, then he goes into Assyria and builds Nineveh, which was another great enemy of God's people. And then verse 13 tells us about the Egyptians, the Philistines. And then verse 15 and onwards tells us about the Canaanite nations, like Sidon, from which came Queen Jezebel. And then these other nations that, that are repeated so often later on, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, wicked nations who were an enemy and a temptation to Israel. Verse 19 introduces us to Sodom, Gomorrah, are, are, you getting, are you getting the picture here? So much junk is coming. So much sin and war and pain and judgment are coming. And all of this from righteous Noah. You see that? This is Noah's legacy. Verse 21 introduces us to Shem's children. Now, just a couple notes here. Shem is from which we get the word Semite, which is why people who hate the Jews are called anti-Semitic. That comes from the word Shem. It's from Eber, one of, one of Shem's sons, that we get the word Hebrew. And the following verses from verse 21 introduce many of the names that we're going to encounter later on in the story of the Bible. And, and chief among them, the people of Israel, of which we know the high points and we know the low points. We know where it ends. Exile, occupation, judgment, disobedience, 
If you know the rest of the story of the Bible, chapter 10 is just a litany of sadness. And then it ends. These are the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, verse 32, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So much for the fresh start, right? So much for the fresh start after the flood. And so we come to our final stop this morning, the most important, where we're going to consider the problem with the world and its solution. Because there is good news in all of this. Last week, we saw how the covenant with Noah that God made in the first part of chapter 9 gave shape to history. It established a firm basis for the plan of redemption to unfold despite the wickedness of man. Now, today's passage shows us a little bit about the shape of the Savior that we can expect within that plan of redemption. And maybe you're thinking, what do you mean, Chris, the shape of the Savior? We've done, we've done nothing this morning but look at sad and depressing stuff. Like, what, what, what's in here about a Savior? Well, this has everything to do with the Savior. Because the whole reason for the flood, the whole reason for the fresh start, the whole reason for the disappointment that followed, the whole reason for Noah's failure, for Noah's broken legacy is to highlight the real problem with the world and thus to show us what kind of a savior we actually need to come and rescue us from it. Let's start with the problem with the world. The problem with the world is not outside of us. It's not other people. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever thought even without words that, man, I just wish people would be more like me and then this world would just work a whole lot better? You know, why didn't they ask me before making that decision? Why did, like, just, man, if, if people just be more like me, like, have you ever thought that? And, you know, I've asked other groups this question and people say, yes, I've thought that. So it's okay to admit that this morning. Maybe you might think that the problem is outside of you in the sense that, well, if circumstances could just change, your problems will go away. How many people in this world are thinking that today, that 2023 is somehow going to fix things, that 2022 didn't, as if three is a magic number that's suddenly going to give them the willpower to kick that habit that they've never been able to kick till now or, or do that great thing they've never been able to, to, to do till now. As if their circumstances change, that their problems are going to go away. Or maybe it's political. Maybe 2023 is going to bring an election and a new government will fix everything and bring us back to the peace and joy of the Garden of Eden. All of this is a fantasy. All of this is a fantasy. The problem with the world is not out there. The problem with the world is in here. And the story of Noah and the flood illustrate that so perfectly. G.K. Chesterton understood that. There was a newspaper in his day that was asking for essays to say, uh, explain what is the problem with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter, and I'm not quoting it exactly, but he basically said, Dear Sirs, I am. Now, G.K. Chesterton did not think he single-handedly caused all the problems in the world, but do you see what he's saying? The problem with the world is me. The problem with the world is the sin that lurks in the heart of every person. The problem is, is Genesis 8.21, the fact that the intention of our heart is evil from our youth. That's what the story of Noah shows us. And see, we, we couldn't have learned it any other way because we maybe would have thought, well, why didn't he just start over? Maybe the problem was Adam. You know, maybe if he picked someone else. Maybe if he picked me, started over with me, things would be okay. But the story of Noah shows us it's not going to work. If God were to take you and your perfect little angel children and set you on a brand new earth with nobody else around, you would tank things as fast as Noah did because the problem with the world is in here. 
and a fresh start and a second chance. So many people often talk about God's grace as being just second chances. I'm so glad it's more than that because we'll blow every second chance we get. It's about so much more than that. We don't need just to learn some lessons. No one his family learned some lessons. We'll forget them as soon as Ham did. We need a savior. We need someone who is more than just another man like Noah. We need someone who is more than just blameless. Noah was blameless. We need someone who has a heart that is not evil from their youth. We need someone who is far more than just another human. And more than this, we need someone who can actually deal with the wickedness in our own hearts. We need someone to forgive us. We need someone to atone for our wickedness. We need someone to bring peace between us and God. And we need someone to deal with the root of the problem, giving us spiritual heart surgery and and actually changing us from the inside out. The story of Noah shows us this so, so clearly. The story of Noah shows us what our problem is and what kind of a savior we need. In other other words, the story of Noah is about Jesus. The story of Noah is about Jesus. Because the story of Noah shows us that we need a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 10.26. The story of Noah shows us that we need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. The story of Noah shows us that we need a Savior who by the power of his Spirit, as we see his glory in the gospel, is causing us to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, see, see the, the good news of, of Jesus and, 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 the, and the, all that he does He doesn't just take away the penalty of our sin. He doesn't just take away our judgment. He actually changes our hearts. He's actually making us new. And this is possible, finally possible, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Do you see that in Christ, we're no longer a part of this old cycle of Noah and his sons repeating the same mistakes again and again and again. In Christ, the first fruits of the new creation through his resurrection, we are now, because we were buried with him in baptism and raised again to new life, we are a part of the new creation in Christ. New creations in Christ. We've been set free from the old cycles And the eternal life of heaven is already living inside of us, making us new from the inside out. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the work of Christ. This is the work of Christ. So much more than a fresh start, a true new beginning. Isn't that good news as we stand together at the dawn of another new year? This year is not going to be easy for us. Now, I don't say that because I'm a prophet and I know exactly what's coming. But I say that simply because we live on planet Earth. Has there ever been a truly easy year since Adam bit the fruit in the garden? This is going to be a year of challenges and surprises. There will be joys we did not expect. There will be disappointments that we didn't see coming. But is it possible to walk into this unknown with confidence? 
The answer is yes, because the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and redeemed us. And by his powerful Holy Spirit, he is using every difficulty to shape us to be more like himself. He's using every pain to make us less attached to this earth and more eager for eternity. He's using every hard day to make us treasure him more than we did before. He's using every pain to make us look more like himself. If you are in Christ and are walking in him, then nothing in 2023 not even the hard stuff, especially not the hard stuff. Nothing is going to be wasted because the Savior, so much better than Noah, is at work in you to shape you to be like himself. So that's why we want, we want to end this morning by thinking about Jesus and how much of a better Savior he is than anything that we can imagine and by asking him by his Holy Spirit to come and breathe new life into us as we walk with him into this new year. We need him. And we have him. Praise God this morning that we're not stuck back in Noah's broken legacy. Praise God that we can walk into the newness of life that our Savior has bought for us. I'm going to pray for us here. We're going to have a moment of quiet. In this time, I encourage you, lift your eyes to your Savior and praise Him. And then we're going to ask Him to come and walk with us by His Spirit into whatever He has for us in these next days together. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you're better than Noah. Thank you that you never fell, you never went too far. You never slipped up. You never made any mistakes. There's nothing, Jesus, we have had to ever forgive you for. Nothing we ever will have to forgive you for. You're spotless and blameless and perfect. And you gave yourself for us. And you've taken away our sins, the punishment and the penalty and the power and by your Holy Spirit, you're shaping us to look like you, changing us from the inside out. Thank you so much for something so much better than Noah. And Lord Jesus, help us to begin this new year by faith. By faith. That you're working all things for good. And that good is in the end being with you, being like you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much for your love for us, expressed in such a beautiful way. Don't let us miss it this morning. Amen.